New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mandrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mandrinos. Hello, everybody. This is Jim Mandrinos, and welcome to the Comedy Legacy Show. Uh, we have a great guest in store for you today. One of the best compliments that you can give a comedian is that nobody sounds like him. Nobody does what he does. And I can't think of somebody who fits that description more than today's guest, uh, DC Benny. DC is a storyteller. DC does characters, but he doesn't just do the voices, he inhabits them and, and does a whole 360 degree embodiment of the characters. He's somebody that has always carved out a very unique path artistically. And he's a voice that I think newer comics, the next generation needs to hear. So ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome Mr. DC Benny. All right, so this one's going to be fun for me because one of my favorite comics to watch is joining us. And uh, DC, DC Benny, uh, if you don't know him, DC, this is great because you are unlike every comic in the world. You are the most unique and original voice that I have seen in the longest time. You are you, and your bits don't sound like anybody else. And that's something that <clears throat> has always amazed me because I know you now a billion years, feels like a billion years, and you've had that original voice from the start. What did you do and who are your influences that kind of impacted your style of comedy? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for that. That's uh, very nice that you say all that. Uh, you, know, um, you know, I've always enjoyed your stand-up as well, my friends. So oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, I had, a, you know, my route is kind of circuitous, you know, with uh, stand-up. Um, I, I grew up, my parents were very specific about what we were allowed to watch. Like they had a quality control. We had a little black and white Emerson TV and they picked out very specific things. And they, so there was Monty Python. I was allowed to watch Monty Python. Um, Sanford and Son was, was a, uh, you know, stuff that they thought was funny, like All in the Family. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, and a lot of, there were a lot of like these sort of odd movies, like, you know, just foreign movies. I grew up watching a lot of foreign movies as a child, like in my formative years. So I had a kind of tweaked sense of humor. You know, so it wasn't like traditional stand-up. I didn't see that till much later, till like in my teens, you know, but I grew up like seeing Peter Sellers and the party and stuff like that. And, and uh, so it wasn't like, it was more comedic actors. Uh, my, my, I also had a, uh, my dad got me this record when I was a kid. I had a record player and it was, it was these James Thurber stories, uh, Tales of Our Times. And Peter Ustinov, this actor, read the stories and he did all the voices in the stories. And I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. Like, the, you know, uh, he would do all the, he wouldn't just read a story, but he did all the voices of all the little characters in the story. And it was, I feel like those kind of things uh, definitely influenced me comedically on, on a kind of subconscious level. And then, you know, I just had guys that I just, you know, the, the Priors and, the, and, and Robert Klein and all those guys, I, I just love 
watching later. I mean, even the Dice Man, I love to watch the Dice Man. It was like you weren't allowed to listen to him or whatever. <laughs> you know, so it was such a forbidden thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so it was a real mishmash for me. That's a long answer to your question, man. No, but it, it makes sense. I mean, what you do kind of, it, it reminds me of the, for me, it kind of reminds me of what the beat writers would be if they were stand-ups. You know, it's intensely personal. It doesn't hide its intelligence. And you're not afraid to take your time. Um, you're a storyteller on stage, you know, even even in your stand-up. And that's not to say that you don't have quick punchlines because, dude, you do. Brutally quick and very funny. But your, your bits have a beginning, a middle, and an end consistently you take us on a journey is that something that you did as a choice or is that just kind of the way you evolved it evolved you know what uh it evolved i have to give my wife credit for that a lot because i when i first started out doing stand-up i was you know i was a white comic i mean i still am but I, in in uh working in these in in black rooms and i would just do characters uh, because I, I was afraid of bombing, you know? I mean, every, every time I could get, you could get booed off, you know, so I had, had like an extra hurdle. So I would just do the, bring the concentrate. But what I used to do to get people laugh, uh, to get people to laugh that I knew, I, I would just tell them about something that happened during the day or some funny story that happened during the week. But I could never bring that to the stage. I would just kind of extract the characters from the story and go up there and, and uh, and it would kill, you know. It would it would really kill. But I I felt like there wasn't a lot of me in there. It was just the characters. And then one day I was telling my wife a story about going to a prom uh, with this 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 drug dealer dude had threatened me that that I had to take his sister to the prom, who was like four hundred pounds, you know. And um, I told my wife that story and she's like, you gotta tell that story on stage. And I was like, well, you know, there's all this stuff in between and whatever, it's gonna be quiet, you know, people aren't gonna be laughed. She's like, you gotta tell that story on stage. So I went and I tried it and it eventually became, you know, through trial and error, the first story I did on stage, the biscuit story. And then after that, I couldn't look back. Cause I'm like, this is what I do. I get, to, it's multi-dimensional. I get to be me and narrate it and, and have funny asides and then I get to do the characters in the story as well you know so it's like making a little a little movie like a little indie film you know so that's yeah. that's kind of the evolution of that you yeah. know what I love most about watching you as a storyteller there's a lot of great storytellers around and a lot of great storytellers you know when we were first on the road that we would get to see people like Ron Shock and guys <laughs> like that um, but what I love most about what you do storytelling wise is you're not afraid of the silence. You're not afraid to take the pause and let something drop on the audience. How long did it take you to be able to embrace that? Because that is scary shit for a comic. It is, it is man. Uh, it took a lot of bombing. And, um, uh, you know, I'm still, I'm still scared of it. It's like, it's just, uh, I, you know, I don't want the silence, but the silence can also mean they're listening. They're really listening and they want to see what's next. And it's sort of a, it's kind of like every time you get up there, you have to sort of reframe your vision and feel comfortable about your relationship with the audience and how they're perceiving you. And uh, if it's going right, like if I'm feeling good and I'm up there, 
the silences are they're waiting for the next punch. And then when they, I, I gauge how the story's doing, like if they're silenced during the punches, well then that's gonna be a problem, you know? But <laughs> it, it was a lot of, you know, I did a lot of weird experimental shows on in like the early 90s on the Lower East Side, the surf reality shows mm -hmm. and things like that. And, you know, they, I mean, it'd be like me and Rick Shapiro and, and, and Face Boy and all these random people, the, the, wow. the, the ears, the Spock ears, I don't know, what, yeah. Reverend Ken, like all, you know, it was just, uh, so there was, it was so much weird stuff going on. You could really, I credit that time with letting me kind of stretch out a little bit. So, and then I would go back to the, I would go run to the Boston Comedy Club, which, you know, there was no quarter there for anything. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go run over to like Surf Reality or Collective Unconscious, kind of stretch out a monologue or something, run it back to the Boston. That was the, you know, if it worked at the Boston, then it would, you know, then it would work. You know, then it would yeah. work. That was really the, the you know, the, the killing ground there. Um, but uh, I, I kind of, I think just, you know, taking pieces uh, and working them in different environments really helped. You know, it's getting out of the comedy club and then coming back into the comedy club helped with uh, the, the, the silences or the quiet times in between the jokes. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because you dance around between a lot of different types of shows. I mean, as you said, in the early days, you started primarily in the, the African-American, you know, shows. And then you want, you've always been in mainstream rooms like Gotham and The Strip and Caroline's and, and Boston Comedy Club. And then you're also doing the alternative rooms like Surf Reality. Do you prep different for those? Do you have to approach those shows differently? I think so. I think, you know... I, in, a, in a perfect world, I'd like to say no, but in a, realistically, you know, there are certain types of nuance and material that's not going to work with certain crowds. Like, and and I, I would find out, you know, the hard way that, you know, when I worked in like the Uptown in Harlem, uh, early 90s, um, there were jokes that I could do for all black crowds that when I got to a mainstream room, it just would go over everybody's head. They, they wouldn't get the references or whatever. I, I had a joke about, um, I, I was, it, which came from a real situation. I was standing in front of the Uptown, there was gunfire, and the guys, the comics I was standing with were identifying what kind of gun it was. You know, they were like, that's a nine millimeter, or whatever. And it was just so funny to me that everybody was so calm about it and, 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 uh, and uh, uh, it, it was this sort of analytical, and then I would take that across to the mainstream rooms, and it 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 seemed fictitious. Like people wouldn't believe, mm. you know, that, that that was actually that that actually happened. So there were, and and then vice versa. There were things that I could bring into, you know, from the mainstream rooms to to like the black rooms, and they wouldn't work or whatever. So I, I if I have any opportunity to prepare for a set in a particular room or a particular crowd. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of go through stuff a little bit and be like, maybe that's not going to work or maybe that's not going to work. But it's also, sometimes I just let it roll out and see what happens, um, you know, especially if it's a new thing. Uh, but sometimes I just, I think less more. I think now I just kind of let it come out and it's going to come out how it is. And you're, you guys are either with me or not. But I think more so before, maybe, you know, uh, over the uh, over the years, I would I would try to prepare a little bit, you know, especially mm -hmm. just opening up, getting that first laugh, you know, uh, I think is uh, w was part of the process. 
what I really enjoy watching on stage is those those rare times. It doesn't happen a lot because you've got such stage presence. But those rare times where the audience heckles, because you get heckled differently than any other comic. You get heckled in with the audience agreeing with you more than I've ever seen anybody else. <laughs> no, no one's ever said that. That's funny, man. Yeah. Wow, I got to think about that now. Because I can't tell you how many times, the, the few times I've seen you be heckled, it's never a you suck or that's not funny. It, it's always, I was just thinking that, or, or yes, absolutely. It's almost like signifying. So what is it that you think you're doing as a writer or a performer that makes the audience feel so comfortable that it feels like a personal journey for them as well? What I hope to do and what I try to do, and when I, when I coach guys, I, I tell them this, I say, in a, you know, again, what you strive for as a comedian, or what I believe you should strive for, is that whatever you did when you made people laugh that first time and that you, you know, before you did comedy, when you were around your friends or family, you want to take that feeling and translate it to a room full of strangers so that they feel like they know you and you feel comfortable enough to say the stuff that you would say in front of your friends to them in, in, in the same manner that you can be natural, you know, that you can have your most natural delivery, which just, it, it took me years and years and years and years to get to that place. And I, I still struggle with it, but I feel like that is when it's working, then you, you get the, you get the positive heckles as, as you might call them, you know, you get the, the affirmations of like, you know, they feel, they feel comfortable enough to like, we're almost in a conversation together, you know, mm -hmm. that, 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 that they don't even realize, you know, that, that they think you're helping you, helping you uh, do your show. So I feel like that's what I strive to do, man. It's just to, uh, is to be, make the audience feel like we're, you know, like we're at a big cookout or at a bar talking or whatever on a road trip together. That was mm -hmm. probably the best, if, 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 if the best analogy I can think of is that we're on a road trip together. I'm telling these stories to kill time. And, you know, hopefully if they jump in, it doesn't derail the story, you know, but I, I, I appreciate the enthusiasm, you know, if they're not shouting, you suck or whatever, but if they're like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, whatever, that's, that's, uh, uh, I look at that as a positive. Yeah. Now let's, uh, let's talk process. Cause I've talked to a couple of storytellers and some of them are meticulous and, I write everything down on the page and it's almost a script. And there are those guys that are there like, I have a loose idea, I go up, I talk, and then I just translate what I've done on stage. Where do you fall on the spectrum? What's your process for creating a brand new bit? Uh, you know, it varies, it varies. Some stuff uh, I will write out meticulously, um, but I think more so with the stories, I think I have a, sort of beginning, middle, and end. And then I'll have bullets, um, you know, bullets that I want to hit during it that propel the thing along. But how I get there, uh, how I get there is is very improvised, you know? So if I know if I have the beginning, like I'm working on a story now, when I, when I first moved to New York about uh, living with this guy and he would give me these random jobs. I'm living in, in Hell's Kitchen uh, on top of Kaufman Surplus. 
and uh, next to Show World. And I had no money, and uh, <laughs> I moved to the city, you know, to do comedy and whatever. And this guy would just give me these random jobs to help out so I could pay to rent. And, and one of the jobs was I had to pick up this dog for a fashion shoot and put it in a, in a cab and take it to the uh, Plaza Hotel. And I got there and the dog was dyed blue. And it had, and I had to have this blue kind of toy poodle with me going to the Plaza Hotel. And, uh, and, there's, and it was, it's, there's a whole story about it that just was crazy at the time. I'd only been in New York for a little while and I've got this blue dog and I'm, you know, people, I'm there, I get to the Plaza, there's a PETA demonstration. People are like getting angry at ladies with blue hair yelling me about the blue dog, you know, and, um, uh, but as I'm, and I'm going through the story now, trying to remember everything that happened, but part of it is describing what happened. And that's the part, uh, that's the part that I, I kind of write on a little bit, like, you know, not just, not just the details of, of, of what happened, but my take on it. And that's, that I think is what I've kind of, I separate the story uh, uh, between the events and my take on it. And the, the take on it is, is where the writing happens a little more, I think. Now, um, I've worked with storytellers like Ron Schock, who was very adamant of you don't embellish, you don't add, you tell the story, you can put your opinions on it, but you tell the story truthfully. And then I work with storytellers who are there like, here's a nugget of truth and this is kind of my fantasy towards it. How much do you stick to absolute reality and how much do you play? Uh, I think, well, first of all, I think it's entertainment. Okay, you're there to entertain. So, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in the school of the Mark Twain where you know, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. But I, you know, what, what might happen is that the things in the story, and, and maybe some of them, I'd say most of them are pretty close to the, pretty close to as it, as it happened. But sometimes just to move it along, I will pick out something that happened, but maybe at another time and drop it in a little bit just to just to propel it along. I'm, I, you know, I'd say they're, they're mostly truthful, but like I think most history that, you know, alleged recorded history and everything, yeah. I think it's all subject. I, I, I don't feel like anybody out there tells a 100% true story. I don't care who it is. You know, the best, the best old dudes on the porch down in Alabama smoking a corn cob pipe, drinking the, drinking the you know, the, the corn mashings and all that. The, I think everybody, you're going to embellish somewhat with it. And I feel like anybody aspiring storyteller, anybody doing that, you know, just make it entertaining, you know, make it entertaining. And, and uh, the truth generally will be funnier, you know, but um, if, if it has a little nudge, you know, that's no harm done. Um, I want to talk about exactly what you did in, in that answer. And that was the sheer amount of details you put in when describing something. You know, the old dudes on the porch with the corn cob pipe, drinking the corn, but you just infused it with so many details. Is that one of the, the key components to structuring a good story? Is I it making so. it visual? I think that's what makes it, first of all, that's what makes it believable. To me, is the details are hard to make up. You know, I mean, like, I always use this example. 
you can you can break into an old car, okay, and to steal it, or you can take the tennis ball and cut the hole in the bottom and put it up against the lock and and pop it so the air pushes the you know the button up and and, and that kind of detail makes it a lot more compelling. And and somebody who's done that, you know, uh, you know what I'm saying is like that gives that's the type of thing where that's not necessarily hilarious uh, detail or whatever, but details are what make stories. Details, when I listen to somebody, um, I remember once uh, my car broke down and this, this guy picked me up uh, in, a, in a flatbed and we were going to, on the BQE, my car had broken down and I called AAA, but they won't pick you up if you break down on the BQE because the, the 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 Brooklyn Queens Expressway because the there's they have some deal with the mob that you have to be you have to be off on an exit so you have to use one of their tow trucks uh, so this dude picks me up he's got the teardrop tattoos and everything we're driving along he's talking to me uh, and I look in the back of the truck and he had uh, um, kind of costumes hanging back there like it looked like Halloween costumes and the first one was a Hasidic costume with the payas and everything and and, and I'm talking to this guy, I'm like, what is it, you know, it's August. I'm like, what do you, what's those costumes? He, the guy told me that he did um, repo on the side. He would repo cars. And a lot of times he had to go to Williamsburg and repo the Hasidic Jews minivans. And he, and he would want to blend in when he did that because so, that, so there wouldn't be an issue. So he'd wear like, he'd wear the outfit, like the payas and everything. This guy had the teardrop tattoos. And I'm thinking that, <laughs> The tattoos and the and the fucking other things, you know, it's just it was so funny. But it was such a great detail of what could have just been getting in a uh, your car breaks down, you, you get picked up by the flatbed, you go to the to the to the you get towed, you go to the station. But here there was like a mini adventure within that if you just listen and look around. You know what I mean? So uh, that 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 would be my answer to that. All right. How often do you write? Uh you know, I wish every day, I'll go through periods where it's every day, especially if I'm preparing for something. Um, uh, and then sometimes, look, I get lazy. Sometimes I get lazier of working on other stuff or, and, and, and uh, there'll be breaks. Uh, but I, w- I would like to say every day, but that would not be true. I, I, I strive to do that. I strive to do that. And there'll be long chunks where I do do that. And then there'll be, periods where I kind of let it build up a little bit and I'll scribble something or I'll, I'll make a note and I kind of, I, I build up the excitement. It's like a little foreplay and the writing is the release a little bit or, or, the, or the leading up to the release. So it's like, if I know I've got, oh, you know, this idea, I've got this idea, it'll, it'll kickstart the writing again, you know? So I think that's, that's my problem, but I, sh- I should be doing it every day. <laughs> and if anyone's listening, they should be doing it every day. Yes, every day. Um, let's talk about, you know, going back in and revising. Because one of the things I love about watching you work is sometimes you'll bring back an older bit and I'll go, oh, I love this bit, but it'll be totally revised, totally different. And you kind of kind of keep putting your fingers into uh, into the mix and and redoing it, you know. If, two, re- two things. One, how come? And two, is that you think a vital part of what you do? I think, look, I think there's a two-pronged answer to that. One is uh, sometimes 
I'll bring back an older bit, like in reference. It's if I'm if I'm doing a like a story, like I have a this story about uh, being on a cruise ship, okay. And and I have a bit I've been doing for it's got to be twenty years about uh, you know I'm Jewish. I got a German Shepherd. He's always looking at me like he's thinking about the good old days, you know, whatever. I have this whole bit about it. And I did it in this story on this cruise ship, so I have to repeat it to, to make the story work. So there's that way of doing it. But then there's another, the, the, I think the more, uh, the way that I do it more is that I'll have a bit, a lot of these stories is they're like, they're not done. You know, I have this, uh, my last album, I had two stories that I've been working on and I could not, the ending just hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened and it, it, it took time for it to actually happen. I was struggling with what the ending is, with the ending, I was writing and writing and writing. And um, then the, the endings organically happened later in my, in my life, like four or five years after the story. Uh, 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 just in time for the album to come out there. <laughs> but they, you know, they happened or I recognized them happening. So I feel like that part, you know, it's like these, these chunks are, are kind of always being molded. They're, they're clay that I'm always kind of molding a little bit. So if something is familiar, uh, uh, and I'm working, I'm tool, I'm retooling it or whatever. It just means it wasn't finished in the first place. You know? Yeah. Now, a lot of guys that started out when I did, and then you started a couple of years after I did, um, really rely on pop culture, really rely on stereotypes, really rely on, you know, I don't want to say the easy way because nothing's the easy way in stand up, but kind of rely on some shortcuts. And you've never done that. You've always tried to, to keep it as personal as you can. And my question to you is, is it is it a conscious decision to block out the easy way or is it more of you just want to write this way i feel like all right i don't know to me it's not easy to me that's just you you, you know you're always watching the news you're you're getting you're, you're topical uh but to me it doesn't last i don't like i like things that last i like compiling a body of work that isn't uh reliant on a certain time period. And, and the only time I strayed from that is during 9-11. You know, I had a whole chunk of material on 9-11 because it was just so in my face. We lived by the Brooklyn Bridge and I, I woke up, my dog's barking, I look out the window and the towers are on fire. And then, you know, just being in New York at that time, it, was, it had such a powerful uh, hold on me that I, I you know, I, I, I did do, I, I did write a lot of stuff about that, but uh, which ended up in a story. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, about to uh, release a, an album and it's, it's got a, that 9-11 chunk is interspersed in, in one of the stories. Um, uh, but beyond that, I just, that just is never something I really, I appreciate when people do it and when they do it well and whatever, but I just felt like I wanted to compile a body of work that was kind of interlocked. It was a, it was like a journey through a life, and it wasn't uh, dependent on uh, on on news events or what music was out at the time or you know trends or anything like that. So I don't, I don't look down on that, and I think you know at all. I think that people you know there's a gift. I just I just 
specifically went a different route. And if somebody, like if I have to write, you know, what do you call it? Raylan's uh, Comedy Cellar, Night at the Cellar thing. That, uh, Comedy Cellar, if I had to write some topical stuff for that, I wrote a bunch of topical stuff for that. But then it's like you're done with it. And um, and some people like the that cycle of writing it. You put it out there, you get really good at that. So you can be like bang, 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 bang. And you're done with it. And the next bit and the next the, the next event, the next event. For me, that's I like to I like to have it so 10 years later, it's still it's 20 years later, ideally, it still works, you know, because it's just a super personal um, part of a life that was lived. That's my, what I strive for. Now, there are stories I've written about different ages in my life that I do on stage. For instance, I, you know, I used to run away a lot when I was a kid, and I'll do bits about running away. As I get older, you know, and now I have a 14-year-old and I look and I go, oh, I ran away when I was 14, and now I have an impact. Do you update and bring in the new information as you're telling those stories? Or once you said it, you're, you're kind of leaving it? I feel like I feel like I kind of leave it unless it doesn't have an ending, like, like the two I described. Yeah. You know, if it doesn't have an ending, uh, unless, of course, I haven't finished the thing. Like, there's some I'm fiddling around with now that over the years, uh, I just couldn't get right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm still fiddling with them. But I think for me is I like to be done with them and move on to the next, move on to the next chunk. Uh, but what you're talking about, like the being 14, running away, and then having a 14-year-old and running away, I, I think that would definitely, you know, trigger some momentum. For me, it, it, the translation would be if I had a, a chunk that I never worked out about being 14 and running away, and then there was, <laughs> and then I had a 14-year-old that was, you know, it was that time, that would bring it together. That would be the thing that yeah. would bring it together. You know. All right, but if it's pre-existing bit, you kind of, you kind of leave it when you think it's done. I think so. I think so. You know, I mean, I've played around with stuff a little bit, and done a couple tags, but I'm, I'm afraid of deconstructing it too much. Yeah, I used to watch a tell do these bits, and then he would. I, I don't know if it was like a sabotage thing, but you know, then certain nights these bits would kill. They were just killer bits, and certain nights I'd see him do it, and he'd be like, "He ha ha, he ha ha," you know, and wah wah wah. And he would he would sort of uh, he almost would like punish the audience, uh, <laughs> <laughs> punish the audience by, with uh, de by deconstructing them or sabotaging them a little bit, you know, like you guys, you know, he, he was maybe he was sick of doing them. Something like that, and I just didn't. I, I sometimes I felt like I might go down that road, and I didn't want to go down that road. I just wanted to leave them and have them be a finished piece of work and move on to the next thing, you know. And this is not to say anything bad about a tell. Oh, I love watching. It's just, I thought it was such a funny process. He was this prolific guy, you know, and he would do these jokes, and I'd be wait. I would be waiting for the joke to come, and then he would he would kind of mess with the punchline and just just to like. It, 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 it looked like sabotaging it, you know? It and was, you, you uh, knew the joke was out of his act really soon after that. Yeah. Whenever yeah. he would do that. It, yeah. it almost seemed like that was his process of retiring a bit. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk about it because you've had a, a long career uh, and, and you've stayed relevant all these years, you know, and, and you, you've, 
you know, not only relevant, but respected. I mean, people go to you to learn uh, the form uh, of doing stories on stage. Do you get bored with material? Do you retire material? Do you just let it go? I do get bored with it. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I had a, I had a period for about five years where I, I was like, I, I didn't, I didn't want to go on the road. I just want to stay in the city and do the, you know, do spots and stuff like that. Um, and I, at the time I was, I, I, you know, I, I was selling some real estate during the day. I was doing that during the day. So I didn't have to go on the road. Um, because we were doing, we were doing some things here and it just, uh, I was kind of burnt out, but I got so bored with my, I wasn't generating a lot of new stuff and I got so sick. There's a, there's a 20 minute chunk of New York material. Oh, I get so sick of it. I got so sick of it. But when I don't do it for a really long time and like there's, it's a late night at the comic strip and people are drunk or whatever. And I have that in my back pocket. I'm like, boom, here's some subway stuff. Here's the heroin guy for you. Here's the, you know, the homeless joke. Here's, here's a taxi cab story. You, you know, it's, I, I feel great that I have that stuff in my back pocket, but then, you know, you don't do it for so long. You kind of forget, you forget parts of it. So, you know, you're up there, people are drunk late at night. It's the check spot, whatever. And you're like, I'll just break this tried and true out and uh and you're like wait a minute wait a minute what was that what was that punch you know so i i i i do uh i you know i don't remember what i have retired because i've forgotten it yeah. um i've forgotten those bits but there's a there's like a new york chunk that i hold on to that's like you know it's like a half hour you know no fat monster stories and bits and chunks just for the for those late nights you know for those rough times that it's 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 pretty old i'll yeah. say that it's pretty old <laughs> the survival set yes um can, can we talk a little bit about burning out because i don't think people realize it um you said that you had a, a about a, a five-year period where you burned out a little bit i know for me um in the early 2000s there was a time where it was just like ah, all right let's do this again you know, and, and I don't think people realize that you can fall in and out of love with what we do, you know, and, and it is the most lasting relationship, but what do you think triggered your burnout and what did you do to get past it? I think, uh, you know, certainly financial stress trigger, triggers it, you know, yeah. it's, it's that uh, my whole plan was that I never wanted to rely on the road. I always wanted to be uh, in in New York City, doing spots, making money doing commercials or TV this, and then writing or whatever. And then the road was sort of the gravy. Um, uh, but it just, I, you know, I just hit a point where things really kind of dried up. You know, they dry. You you hit these peaks and valleys. Things dry up, and bills got to be paid. And um, you know, you're, I'm sure, you know, people watching this or listening to this, you don't make a lot of money in the city doing these spots at these shows. They don't realize these showcase clubs. You don't make a lot of money doing it. No matter how many you do, they don't pay a lot. So they're very prestigious. They're great, but you, if you have bills to pay, it's it's you, it's very difficult to make a living doing that. You need alternate sources of income. So 
I think for me, falling in and out of love was very much uh, just the stress of having to pay bills and, um, you know, I had a mom that my mom was uh, had Alzheimer's. We had to take care of her, and there was a, there was a lot of uh, a lot of things that were tough. And comedy is a very unforgiving business. It's you know I, the business. I hate the business. I'll be honest with you. I, I can't stand the business. I love the art. I love performing, but the business is just is is cruel. And people, you know, will tell you, look, you're not, you're not 25 anymore. We're not betting on you. We're, be we're looking on the young, we're going to bet on these young horses, you know? So you you, no matter what you've done, no matter how funny you are, even though a lot of these guys are uh, uh, embryonic uh, on, on, uh, in what, you know, they're, you know, put them on a late show. We don't know what's going to happen but when they run through their 10 minutes or whatever, we're still betting on them. So it's, it's, that's the business. Um, so I, I feel like that struggle sort of was the impetus for the in and out for me. I always, I always did stand up and I always did it as frequently as possible, but I just realized I, I want to, I want to have like a little side hustle that takes the financial pressure off so I can say, I can say no when I need to, to some of these shit gigs, you know, yeah. that'll, that'll kill you, you know? Um, and, uh, that 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 back to your question is that is the type of thing that contributes to being burnt out as you get you know your your is the struggle of this business it's a it's a very 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 hard business and and uh to try and 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 it and there's not a lot of logic associated with uh success and you you really have to be a, a really good business person and that was not, I didn't, I was not a great business person. I was an artist and I've learned to be a better business person. But when I started out, I didn't know shit about business. I didn't know how, I just, you know, did not really realize how you, it's, it's incredibly important to, uh, you know, plot things out. And, uh, and I would watch guys who did that and, uh, and and be like you know be in awe of that later like i look back at guys who i you know started with and everything who were really you know they had a they had a, a good business sense and and wish that i you know i wish that i just made some different decisions <laughs> earlier <laughs> yeah i think we all do yeah but um now you've done you know a lot of tv and to be a storyteller on tv has got to be one of the most difficult things to do because the the pressure to pare down a set yeah. to network standards has to be soul crushing uh, at, at times. Can you talk us through the process of what what it takes for you to do what you do on a television show? It's not a it's not a good pairing, you know, really, and it certainly has contributed uh, to to me not being more successful because you know at least the majority of time in time when you you know they don't there's if you just do a straight monologist stand-up set it's going to be gone through the fine-tooth comb anyway um the storytelling fitting that in to the the format of network television it's it's a real it's 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 oil and water it's a really hard thing to do i mean 
I've, I've done it and I've trimmed, you know, I don't, I've trimmed the last, last comic standing thing. I had to chop up some stories to get them in there and it, it worked, but it, you know, when you see how they edit them and all that stuff, it, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the, for the viewer. It's like it detracts from the performance. Like they're like, what, how did we get from here to there? And and I just want to be like, well, I wish I could tell you the whole thing. I wish I could, but I can't. There's time, there's this, there's standards and practices, there's blah, 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 blah. So I, I, it's not a, it's not a, a, a great pairing to, to, to be a story. I think that can change. And I also think it's also how much somebody, you know, one of these shot callers wants to push you. You know, uh, if they really want to push you, if you've got somebody behind, if you have the machine behind you, well, then you'll get a little more leeway if you're doing a late night set or something like that. But if you're, uh, you know, uh, of, of a certain age, <laughs> you've got to be our age. Yeah. You got to dance around and really, yeah. you know, learn to edit and all that. And that's a valuable skill, regardless. You learn to edit. You make it work as best you can, but it's not. It's it's uh, for for those kind of things. It's it's better to have straight jokes, you know. Really, it, it just on a strategic level, you know. Now let's talk about the the physicality you bring to the performance because you're not afraid to use your body. You're not just standing there. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of comics that do characters, and their characters are just voices. And, you know, it's almost like listening to a voiceover artist on stage. You'll change your body posture. Uh, the junkie bit is is the the one i would point to, to to let someone see exactly what you're doing you're not afraid to use your entire body as your instrument was that something you had to learn was that something that came naturally i think uh you know look at times i i i dial it back a little bit but like in in uh in my own perfect world of stand-up i i like to i like to act out i like to make it 3d you know, I like to, it's not just the voice. That's why I, I really dislike when people are like, oh, that's that dude that does voices. I don't just do voices. Part of the character is acting it out. And, you know, I used to do this character, the great Habibi. And it was like this, he was this angry Middle Eastern comic. And I would come on as the great Habibi. And people would believe I was this guy. Arabic guys would believe I was this dude. I'd throw in a couple Arabic words. And I would, I would come on and I would do this whole act as a, you know, this kind of Middle Eastern uh, fish out of water guy talking about moving to New York from some fictional country and, uh, and all my cultural observations and I would do crowd work and whatever. And pe the whole beauty of that character was that people believe I was really this dude. Um, and uh, afterwards, people come up and be like, wale, 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 hale, ma, hale, wale, wale. I'd be like, really, man, I have no idea. That, that, that was just character <laughs> that I did, but thank you very much. Um, and, uh, and that to me is the sign of, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's like you're, you know, you're going, you're going like Kurtz into the jungle, man. You're, you're, you gotta immerse yourself in it and, it, and that way you don't hear the negativity and uh, and it just becomes more believable. It just it just resonates more um, as opposed to just the voice. And and you know, look, there are brilliant uh, impressionists who do just the voice, and it's it's amazing. But I never wanted to be that. I wanted it to I wanted to be 
you know, just completely immersed in it, uh, you know. Yeah, and it's really fun to watch when you, when you do any type of character that has immersion, because there's all of us that know, you know, you and see it, and then there's the audience that is believing it, you know, and it, it's so much fun to watch the audience's reaction when somebody takes them on a journey like that. Um, I also want to talk just a little bit about, you know, when I started, there were a whole lot of great, and I started at 18, there were a whole lot of great stand-ups that saw me and were so kind to me and were there like, okay, Jim, you got raw talent. This is kind of how you write a joke. This is what you're doing wrong. Were there people that helped to shepherd you and guide you through your early years? I had, that would be the minority. I had a, I, I really, I don't know what it was about me, but a lot of guys got threatened by me. Uh, um, and, uh, I'll, I won't name names, but there, there were a couple people, one in particular who really tried to help me, Tony Woods. There was a, there was a guy named Tony Woods, um, yeah. a very talented, funny comedian, a friend who reached out, tried to help me, got me my first college gig, even though it didn't work out because we were late because Tony Woods is always late. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but like really try, you know, tried to help a young guy coming up. But there were a lot of old, older dudes who got very threatened by me, who got very threatened, were just kind of mean and kind of, you know, you know, tried to get, when I finally got a manager, uh, Dave Becky, uh, there were guys in his roster that were like, why are you working with this dude? Like trying to, trying to get this guy to drop me, you know, things like, th things like that, that just, I never really understood. I didn't do anything to anybody, but they just didn't, they didn't like me, um, or they felt threatened by me. So I, 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 I have always tried to help young guys coming up young and, 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 I, and, and female comedians were always nice to me. Generally, I've, I got a lot more help from female comedians than I did, <laughs> you know, from like uh, guys who had been doing it a while. They, they weren't really, female comedians weren't threatened by me. They were like, oh, we could set up some, you know, this guy's going to do all right. And maybe we could work together later or something. And I don't know. I, I never, you know, I, I didn't have that with, uh, with women comedians. But um, it, 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 I always try to help young guys coming up. If anybody's got a they got a question if they come up to me with a question or if they're like hey could you do one of my i have a little show uh on uh, at this bar you know if it's if it's a tuesday night and i'm not doing yeah man i'll drop by i'll do your show at the bar oh shit, you're good. that's great you know uh how, you know how do you do this how do you do that why not why not help these guys you know it's it's so important i feel like it's our job to do that i don't yeah. i don't want to hate on these young dudes i want to you know these guys are the future of what we do. And um, I, I really do try, try to help them. Now, if there's someone who's a pain in the ass, like I see sometimes these guys that are coming up that they treat other people like shit, you know, other, you know they, they're, they're nice to, you know, if I see somebody being nice to me because they need something from me, but they're treating their peers horribly, you know, I'm not gonna be supportive of that person. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull them aside and be like, hey man, you cannot do that. That's not how we do. 
okay, you need to you need to check that behavior. And those guys tend to be very successful. You know, they tend to be very successful. Which but, goes you know, back to your point of the industry being unfair. Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I feel it is incumbent upon us to, yeah. to help people. And I certainly remember, I certainly remember the, the, the few that were uh, supportive of me or encouraging, you know, and I remember the ones that weren't. And they, those, that was unfortunately the majority. So yeah. what can you do, man? What can yeah, you do? It, it, it really does, does suck, but people don't realize that we're, if you're truly a comic, you're never retiring. You're not going away. Yeah. And, you know, you do remember the people that were shitty to you yeah. all these years later. Yes, yes, I do. I got a, I got a little list. I'm a Scorpio. I got a little <laughs> list up here. <laughs> yeah, I think my list is on people that I've blocked on Facebook. <laughs> so a whole bevy of comics that I've blocked that are just like, mm, I have no need to talk to you ever again. So you do teach. You do teach storytelling, and, and you teach stand up to, to a lot of the, the younger comics and everyone raves about what they're learning in your class because you teach an artistic approach. You're not doing that cookie cutter, write 20 jokes on puppies. You're, you're talking about the process of creating art. What is it that most young standups are overlooking in that process of creating art? I think, I think they have an idea of what comedy is or what or how it's supposed to sound uh which is maybe influenced by pop culture and they're missing out on what is naturally funny about them they're they're it's that's it's getting overlooked you know they're so focused on uh you know like in the 80s where you know people would want to sound like seinfeld or, or they'd want to sound a certain way or like dennis leary or this guy or that guy it's almost that these guys are so caught up in the idioms and the and the the language and the the sarcasm and the irony and all that and and uh, they're not honing in on what their voice could be, you know, recreating that, which is what makes them uniquely funny. And it's the hardest thing to find. But if you jump on it, and if you jump on it in the while the seed is still sprouting, you know, you got a better shot at it. And that's, I, I feel like these guys, it's almost like they miss what's naturally funny about themselves. I think that's the biggest mistake. They think it's one thing, but it's really something else that they're going to find out 15 years later, you know, if they, if they stay in the game, you know, so yeah. that, that is the, I think the number one mistake I see. Yeah. And uh, what is it that you're looking forward to doing in your career that you still haven't done? Huh. Um, look, you know, I'd love to have that one special that is just the quintessential special uh, that, you know, you can be like, I'm done after that. It, you can, it, that's the fantasy. I don't think you can ever be like that, but you look at it and you're like, that is as close to a perfect representation of my work uh, that could be. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly, and I, I, I would love, I've been working on projects independently for years. I know you do the same thing. Yeah. You, work, you, you can't just do stand up. You have to generate, uh, you have to use your creative juices to, you shoot, you, you get with a friend, you write something, he shoots something, 
you, you, you do this, it, you know, you, you're constantly, whatever it is, that, that creative process, for, for, for one of those things to fly that I've done over all these years, that would be great. I've done a ton of these damn things. And it seems like every damn time it gets so close and uh, it just doesn't really push through. So part of it is just, I love doing them. And then, uh, but it, it would be nice to sort of have, it's sort of, I think all this would be leading me to a place where I think all standups want to be, whereas that I'm not at yet, where I could be in touch with my, the, the people who enjoyed what I do, with the fans that I, you know, somehow connect with them. So I have, I'm able to, I'm able to always, uh, always have that connection with them right now i don't know there's some here there's some there you know this one writes something on youtube this one this this one that but it's just very disjointed i don't have them i'm not uh in touch with them so i think that would be sort of a goal that i i would love you know to 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 achieve that i'm always been working with but it's a mystery to me i don't know how you get if you ever find out can you let me know yeah. i'm kind of looking at that too <laughs> Uh, DC, this has been really enlightening and a great conversation. You're incredibly generous with your time and, and incredibly generous with the young comics. Where can people find you? Where online can we find out all things DC Benny? Uh, I have a YouTube channel. If you just <laughs> go on DC Benny on YouTube, there's a channel and, and I post stories that I'm working on. So they're, they're uh, you know, they're rough. They, you, 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 they're not finished. They're, that's what I've been doing there, during this whole time. It's like I try to post one a week, uh, and, and that has been that's been great. That's been cathartic, and I, I you know, but you can see, you can see the uh, uh, that that would be uh, there'd be a lot of silence if I was doing those in clubs. <laughs> I'll say that uh, I'm the real DC Benny on Instagram. Um, I do have a uh, an album coming out sometime soon called uh, Adrift in Predicaments on 800 Pound Gorilla Records. And there is a special that I think uh, All Things Comedy is, is gonna get down with. So I'm, I'm, I think we're, we've been talking about that. So that would be, that would be fantastic. That we shot our, I, I shot it, uh, we shot it in black and white. It's just, there's no, a lot of these specials I see, it's like, a, you know, this guy's got a backup dancer and leather pants and a DJ. And it's like, what the fuck is this? You know, where's, this is in a comedy club and it's just the bare bones and it's like 10 stories. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so Real DC Benny on Instagram and um, my, my YouTube channel. Check out my YouTube channel. Just, it's DC Benny on YouTube. You'll see it. You, you know? got it. DC, thanks. thanks for the conversation and hopefully you'll drop by again and talk some more. Absolutely, brother. Take care of yourself. Continued success to you, all right? You too, DC. Talk to you soon. Later. Bye-bye. I love it when I can spend an hour with a guest and actually feel like I learned something in the process. Uh, DC's had an incredible journey. He's had a lot of rough obstacles to overcome, but he's managed to be successful and he's managed to play in so many different types of venues and so many different types of audiences that it's fun to watch him work. It's fun to watch him develop and it's just going to continue. His special that's coming out is going to be unbelievable. And after that, the next set of stories will even be better than that. Um, we had such an amazing time talking to him and storytellers, 
especially you need to go to his YouTube page and watch it. But we will have another fantastic guest for you next week. And please tune back in. I'm Jim Adrinos, and thank you for watching the Comedy Legacy Series. Good night, everybody. This has been a New Media Comedy Worldwide production.